scripture reading for this morning's lesson will be found in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8. Again, it's Matthew chapter 8, we'll be starting in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, for he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and the sea obey him? morning and grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is good to be back in the pulpit once again after being out for two weeks. Uh, that certainly was not the plan. <coughs> not the plan. I didn't even plan on being gone for one Sunday. We had made our vacation to be back that following Sunday, but uh, we had uh, other things come up, obviously, but it's so good. It's kind of almost feels unnatural for me not to be in the pulpit for that long and to be before you, so it's good to be back. I want to let you know I'm thankful for you, and I love you, and I hope that all of us are continuing to keep each other in our prayers and continuing to serve each other in the coming weeks, and so thankful for the love that you have shown to each other in the past weeks. Why are you afraid? Matthew chapter 8 and verse 26. Jesus asked this question to his disciples when they're in the midst of a raging storm on the Sea of Galilee. And I find it kind of an ironic question because when he asked the question and they're in the middle of the storm, there's plenty of reasons for them to be afraid. The boat could capsize. They could drown. They could be struck by lightning. They could hit rocks. There's plenty of reasons and plenty of answers they could have given in that moment right before he stills the storm. Why are you afraid? But as is the case with every question that Jesus asked his disciples He's trying to push them to self-reflection. He's trying to push them to self-assessment. And he's trying to get, push them to greater faith. I also find it an interesting question because it isn't very often that we can explain our fears. You ever think about that? Why, for example, are you afraid of spiders? Why are you afraid of heights or small spaces, crowds or cats? Why are you afraid of those things? Sometimes maybe you could point back to a specific moment in your life and say, that's why I'm afraid. I had a friend once who was afraid of cats and she could always point back to this moment when she was a child when a cat attacked her. So maybe some of us could point back to a specific trauma and moment in our life and say, listen, that's why I'm afraid. But most of the time, we can't even explain why we're afraid of things. We just are. Very few of us have ever been bitten by a spider and yet we remain terrified of them. For most, there isn't a, a rational 
basis for fear. It's just a natural, primal reaction. But in Jesus' question, he follows it up with an answer in Matthew chapter 8. Why are you afraid, O you, of little faith? The reason that they feared in that moment was because they had very little trust in Jesus. They didn't trust his power, which is a little bit odd because up to this point in Matthew chapter 8, if you read all the chapters prior to that, Jesus had already healed people of diseases that could have killed them. He had already healed people who were possessed by demons. And so they had witnessed his power And yet they didn't trust him in this moment to use his power to benefit them. But more importantly, they didn't didn't trust his love. They forgot who Jesus was, but they also forgot who they were in relationship to Jesus. They forgot that they were his friends, that they were his followers, that they were his people. And so because they didn't believe that Jesus could save them, and that even if he could save them, that he would save them, They were afraid. Now, it might seem a little bit harsh to us that Jesus would call out their fears in this way. But I believe that we actually see a gentleness and a beauty in how Jesus addresses this situation here. He doesn't deride them. He doesn't humiliate them, as we often do with people's fears. Whenever we find out someone's afraid of something that we think is silly, we sometimes will even do things that that we know will scare them because we know they're afraid of that. Jesus doesn't do that. He just asks them a question. Why are you afraid? Because before he can calm their fears, he has to address it. And they have to address it. They have to look inside themselves And they have to ask themselves, why are you really afraid? You know I have the power to save us. You've seen things that you can't explain. So that's not an excuse. Why are you really afraid? And he's trying to show them that their fear, as is often the case of our own fears, is often rooted ultimately in a lack of trust in God. And once they understand that fear, then Jesus can alleviate it. Then he can help it. It's not until after he asks the question that he calms the storm. We live right now in a nation, once again, in the grip of a fearful storm. It seems like it's a storm that's been raging for two years almost now, the storm of pandemic hysteria, of political and social upheaval, of foreign threats. And in the midst of this sudden and raging storm, Jesus turns to his people and he asks, why are you afraid? And again, just as the disciples who were in the midst of the storm in this little fishing boat who felt as if they were about to drown... In the midst of that, they probably could have been frustrated with Jesus and asked, why are you asking such a silly question? There's obvious reasons as to why we are afraid. 
And like the apostles, we could give legitimate reasons. The virus is once again transitioning rapidly. Hospitals are filling up. Loved ones we see are hurting and we're concerned for. Governmental authorities are using this as an opportunity for authoritative overreach. Nations are on the verge of war. Civil and social fabrics strained beyond the point of repair. And yet, as children of God, if we search a little bit deeper, we find the answer for us is often the same as the answer for those disciples so long ago. We have very little trust in Jesus. Now, as we look at that scenario there, I, I think we're challenged because we look at it and we say, well, that's not very realistic to live a life without fear. Are you saying that we're never afraid of anything, that we're just you know, automatons that go around and nothing ever startles us, and nothing ever causes us anxiety, nothing ever worries us. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not talking about a reckless fear, or reckless faith, rather, that has no forethought, no wisdom, no discernment. He's not talking about that. In fact, he will combat that type of faith earlier on in Matthew chapter 4, Whenever Satan tries to say, well, listen, it doesn't matter what you do. God's going to take care of you. And Jesus says, you're not supposed to tempt God. He's not talking about a reckless abandon when it comes to faith. And that's not what we're talking about this morning. But we are talking about a daring faith. We're not talking about a reckless faith, but we are speaking of a daring faith. We are speaking of a confident faith. A faith which refuses to compromise its convictions and purposes for fear. A faith which allows us to be honest with our fears, to engage with our fears, and to conquer them through the power of the gospel. And the reason that this is important is because fear prevents us from being fully human. And it prevents us from fulfilling our mission is God's image bearers. Now we know this from experience. Fear holds us back from taking chances, from engaging socially, and from speaking the truth. It starts when we're young, when we're afraid to jump into the pool to our dad, and it moves forward as we fear other, more significant and substantial things in life. In fact, fear is the opposite of faith, but it's also the opposite of love. Love is self-giving, love is self-denying, love is self-sacrificing, but fear prevents love. Fear prevents love in two ways. It prevents love by focusing us on self-preservation. Out of fear of pain and out of fear of death, we choose self-preservation without thought for other people. We become oblivious to the needs of those around us, because we are too afraid to offer them what we have. We see this re within recent months and within the recent year with, with runs on stores, for example, in which people are just piling in things that they couldn't possibly use in that amount of time without any forethought for their neighbor and how they might need those things. And Christians were just as guilty. Not only that, but when we feel people are threatening our self-preservation, we get angry. When we feel that people are putting our safety at risk, 
We get angry. We hate them. We reject them. And that's what we've seen over the past year and a half with the mask, no mask, vaccine, no vaccine discussion. Many of us, including Christians, don't have the faith to rise above the rancor that sustains most of those arguments. Fear prevents us then from the second great commandment of loving our neighbor as ourself. Fear preserves the self without any forethought for the neighbor. The second reason that fear prevents love is through not only self-preservation but through self-indulgence. Because we fear death, we do all that we can to distract us from the harsh realities of that truth through self-pleasuring and indulgence. That is why in our present culture you see as faith diminishes, there is an obsession with every indulgence and every entertainment that we can possibly amass within the world. Because we don't want to be faced with the harsh reality of our own mortality and our own frailty. And if you can't look that dead in the eye, then you have to distract yourself. And if you're distracting yourself and you're indulging yourself and you're comforting yourself and that's the only goal that you have, you don't have time to love other people. Because again, loving people means that you're sacrificing for people. It means that you're giving to people and that makes you quite uncomfortable. The world pursues the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life exactly because it is passing away. 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. But this was not God's intention for the world. Have you ever thought about how fear does not enter into the biblical story until after the fall? It's not until after the fall that Adam says to God, we heard you in the garden and we were afraid. That's when fear comes in, once sin comes in. When shame and guilt and sin come into the picture, then fear comes. There's a direct connection from Scripture's perspective between shame, guilt, sin, fear, and death. If you look, for example, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the Hebrews writer is speaking of Jesus' work of sanctification and salvation. And it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now notice verse 15. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There is this connection between sin, fear, and death. And Jesus comes in. In his ministry, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. To free us from fear. So that we might fulfill our potential as his people for the glory of his name. We see this, for example, in Zechariah's prophecy in Luke chapter 1, verses 74 and 75. There, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit after he has declared that uh, John's name is John. His mouth is open. He's able to talk again. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's prophesying about all the great things that John is going to do and ultimately all the great things that Jesus is going to do. And we get down to verse 74 and 75, and he says that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. 
in holiness and in righteousness before him all of our days. Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying that the ultimate purpose of Christ is to deliver us from the fear of death so that we are no longer serving in fear, but in holiness and in righteousness. That is, we are freed from fear so that we might be right in our relationship with God, which is holiness, and that we might be right in our relationship with our neighbor, in our responsibilities towards them, which is righteousness. Or as Zechariah later puts it in verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. So when, as God's people, whenever we, fe- whenever we refuse to succumb to paralyzing fear, we draw closer to God and we are empowered to give light to those in a world of fear around us. This is the power of the gospel, which Paul says in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 10, abolished death and brought light and life and immortality to light. But how is that? How does the gospel free us from fear? Even in this present moment. Well, number one, through the death of Jesus, we are justified by his grace. And thus, we are released from the guilt and the shame of sin and the fear of God's judgment. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 56 when he says that the sting of death is sin. I find that interesting because it's not so much that the sting of death is death, but that the sting, the the ultimate bite of death, is the fact that we are sinners and that after death we are judged. But within the cross of Christ, we are justified by his grace and the sting of death by his redemption is conquered. Number two, the way that God delivers us, the gospel delivers us from fear, is that when we are offered the hope of the resurrection of Jesus, the healing, the victory through his resurrection, we are given that promise that is real and that is true. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and 55, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And here is the incredible truth. That that is offered to us, not because we are good, not because we are worthy, but through his grace as a gift. Romans chapter 3 and verse 24. And so we learn as Christians and as disciples to combat and conquer our fear when we gaze upon that truth. When we learn to look upon Jesus in the midst of the storm. The fact that Jesus was in the boat did not deny the storm's reality. The problem with the apostles was the problem that Peter had later on. When he comes out to Jesus walking on the water... He's fine as long as he's looking at Jesus. But when he stops to look at the storm, that's when he sinks. And whenever the gospel, and whenever the church takes its eyes off of Jesus, that's when the church will begin to sink. Whenever the church becomes more focused on the storm around us, whenever we become more focused on the fear 
that this world produces around us, that is when the church begins to sink. This is why Jesus sent his disciples on a terrifying mission with a promise. In Matthew 28 and verse 20, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It isn't a question of whether Jesus is in the boat with us. Jesus has always been in the boat. The question is whether or not we have the faith to see him for who he is. This isn't natural. We must make a conscious decision to trust in Jesus and to love and to serve our neighbor despite the hysteria and despite the hate that surrounds us. But brethren, this is what I'm saying now. And this is our crucial cultural moment at this present hour. The church must offer a story which transcends the present narrative of fear. The church must offer a story which transcends the present narrative that says that there is more to life than self-preservation. That there is more to life than self-indulgence. That there is more to life than political power. That in fact, life in and of itself is not found in any of those things, but in Jesus Christ. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. I'm not calling for recklessness. But brethren, you better be sure that I'm calling for confidence in our faith. I am calling for a daring faith, even in our present hour. The soldier is praised, not for how he acts in peacetime, but how he responds in battle. And if you don't believe that there's a battle for the heart and the soul of the church right now, then you are naive. There are forces far beyond us that are pressuring and challenging our own faith and our own hope in the gospel. Cosmic powers of wickedness are at work. Ephesians 6 and verse 12. But one of the ways that we display this commitment to God is that we commit to serving God and we commit to serving our neighbor even in the midst of chaos, even in the midst of fear. Fear is never an excuse for faithlessness or apathy. Fear is never an excuse for faithlessness or apathy. We must not allow the paralysis of fear to prevent us from pursuing our God-given responsibilities as Christians to serve our neighbors, to serve each other, to evangelize, and to worship. God has a glory that he is due. Psalm 92 and verse 2. And if a virus or if a political party or anything else in this life prevents us from offering that service to God, then my true God is self, and it is not God. This is why maybe the cowardly are the first to be thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation 21 and verse 8. But as Paul says in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7, God has not given us 
a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Presently at this hour, the southeastern country of Africa is suffering greatly at the hands of a radical political extremist as well as Islamic terrorist groups at the present hour. Christians particularly are suffering. Their villages are being burned, they're being violently murdered and violated. Children, women alike. And yet even in the midst of this great tragedy, Christianity is flourishing and spreading. One preacher who was interviewed, who asked to be anonymous because his family is actually still missing, said this, he said, when we arrived at the refugee camp, because he was displaced from his home, when we arrived at the refugee camp, our arms were crossed and we were angry. But because we serve, we are strong. Because we serve, we are happy. In a time of difficulty or in a time of ease, we will serve the Lord. What we are called to as the church in times of ease, in times of difficulty, is fearless, faithful service, even at this present moment. Could we say the same? Let us pray together. Our God and our Father, we call out to you and we cry to you, knowing, Father, that you are God and we are not. We know, Father, that at every hour there is confusion, there is fear in this present world, a fear that doesn't know the story of Jesus, that doesn't know the, the glory and the victory of the death and the resurrection of your Son. And Father, we know that as your people, we don't always face those circumstances the way that we should, and we confess that as your people, that we just naturally fall into patterns of fear rather than hope, and uh, fear rather than confidence, and anxiety rather than trust. And we pray that by your power and by your spirit, you will grant us, Father, by your sovereign hand and by your presence, power to overcome the wicked one. Help us to have the eyes of our heart enlightened to the reality of your love. Help us, Father, to have the eyes of our heart enlightened to the reality of the hope that we have in Christ that far surpasses anything that we could possibly imagine, that the weight, glory that awaits us cannot even be compared to the struggles of this present hour. We pray, blessed Lord, that you will watch over our church family, that you will heal those that are suffering, that you will strengthen our hearts for greater service to you. We pray, Father, that on the other side of this 
pandemic, on the other side of all of this that's going on in our country, that we will be a church that is more holy, a church that is more zealous, a church that is more devoted to your cause. We pray that we love each other more fervently than ever before, that we use these opportunities to serve and lift each other up, to encourage and exhort one another in the most holy faith. We pray that we are a community of truth and grace, of love and goodness to our neighbors, to the world, that we show them a better story than the one that the world offers, Father. And we pray that one day we can stand before you in judgment, cleansed by the blood of your Son, given a good conscience by his righteousness, and standing firmly within the hope of heaven. As in your Son's holy and blessed name, we pray all these things. Amen. If you have any need, would you please come as together we stand and as we sing.